Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. So yeah, a lot of weeks I'm up uh, helping with the children, and I love working with the children's ministry because kids are always honest to, uh, to you, and so this one girl came up to me and she goes, has anyone ever told you how handsome you are? And I was like, no. And she goes, there's a reason for that. So I've written books on how to tell Bible stories to preschool children, and I write serial killer novels. So my wife says it's kind of like inviting Stephen King over to do a puppet show for your kindergarten class. So that's kind of my life is I'm a storyteller, and I'm a writer, and I've been doing this for for many years. And as I was looking at the um, the wilderness guide for teenage to be looking at this week, it made me think of a story. I used to work as a wilderness guide for teenage delinquents. Uh, we called it Hoods in the Woods. <laughs> but not, not to their faces. And so I remember that we would go on these 30-day-long wilderness trips. And uh, the whole goal was to teach choices and consequences to these students. So a lot of them were in trouble with the law. They were either going to go to juvenile prison or come on our 30-day-long wilderness trip. With, with us. And so the deal was um, a lot of them didn't identify with uh, a choice that they made and a bad consequence for that choice. And so we wouldn't say, you have to put up your tent. We would say, if you don't put up your tent, it rains tonight, you get wet. We wouldn't say, you have to cook your supper now. We would say, if you don't cook your supper, you're going to be hungry tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning. And so choice and consequence. So I remember this one trip we were on in the Shawnee National Forest in Southern Illinois. And um, uh, it was the 21st day of the trip. Now, as, as the trip went on, uh, we would start with um, teaching them outdoor skills and then eventually move on to expedition stage. And then by the 21st day, they were pretty much camping on their own, but, um, but we, were, we were there in case a problem came up or something, and, and uh, so we were nearby. And now, on this trip, there were 12 students and three staff. One of the boys, I remember, his name was Dan. Dan was a wrestling champ from the state of Illinois. He was 181 pounds of pure muscle. He'd sit there doing two-handed push-ups, one-handed push-ups, no-handed push-ups. I mean, he was good. And um, he wasn't exactly the brightest street lamp on the block, okay? I don't know how to tell you. The wheel was spinning, but the hamster was dead. All right. And there was a girl on the trip named Monica. Monica was in for drugs. Dan was in for beating up a cop. So it's like, yeah, we'll spend 30 days in the wilderness with them. And Chris, one of the other instructors, gathered the students around. It was springtime, and we were right uh, near a stream or, a, or a, well, a river down there in, in the wilderness uh, uh, at Shawnee National Forest. And so he gathered the students around. And he said, now, I don't want any of you to go swimming this afternoon. Dan's like, man, I don't go swim. I'll go swimming. In fact, I'm going to take off my clothes. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to go swimming. He was a white boy. And that's how he talked. And Chris said, because of the copperheads and cottonmouths, Dan's like, them snakes, ain't they? He said, yeah, them snakes. And he said that last year a cow was trying to get across the river in a seven-foot-long cottonmouth. And that cow was dead and bloated in the size of a Plymouth minivan by the time it reached the other shore. And then he went on to explain what copperhead venom does to the human body once the snake has pierced your skin with its fangs and injected its venom into your bloodstream. And 
And I looked over at Alden, one of the other instructors, and kind of winked at her, and I was thinking, he's just using scare tactics, you know, laying down the law, laying down the rules, trying to get them to obey. But then I thought, we're three days hike from the nearest road. I mean, if anyone got bitten by a snake, it'd be serious business. So it's that afternoon, sunlight filtering through the trees, and students about 100 yards ahead of us as we're hiking along the river, and all of a sudden we hear this scream from where the students are. Staff, staff, we need the staff up here. We got a huge poisonous snake. We're back there thinking, yeah, right. It's probably like an earthworm with a glandular problem or something. Let's go check it out. So we come up the trail, and we find there in the center of the circle of teenage delinquents, there's Dan. With his right hand, he's holding a snake right behind the head. He's squeezing the snake's head. With his left hand, he's got a stick. He's holding the tail of the snake down. He's, he's like, I thought it was a garter snake when I caught it. It's a copperhead snake. It's a deadly venomous snake. I looked at him. I said, a garter snake with fangs? He said, if I drop it, it'll probably bite me. I said, that's right, Dan, it will. <laughs> I looked over at the other staff. I mean, we didn't know what to do. We hadn't had any courses in wilderness guide training school on how to disarm a violent teenage offender wielding a mistake in five easy steps. So I said, Dan, you've got three choices. Remember, give them choices, let them live with the consequences. <laughs> or not. And so... I said, Dan, choice one is you can drop the snake's head. It will probably bite you. Venomous snakes can strike up to three times per second. I don't like choice one. <laughs> What's choice two? I said, well, choice two, Dan, is you could pick up the tail of a snake, turn from the group, take the head of the snake, toss it away from yourself at a 45-degree trajectory, at which time letting go of the tail. Do not forget to let go of the tail, or the snake will wrap itself around your neck and bite you in the jugular vein thereby sending the snake 20 to 25 feet from yourself and the rest of the group. All right, I didn't know what I was talking about. I'd seen it like Animal Planet or something, you know? He's like, what's choice three? Now, the thing was, I hadn't actually come up with a third choice, but I didn't want to look stupid, so I made one up on the spot. I said, Dan, you could hand the snake to me. All right, I don't think well under pressure, okay? And I said, I will take the head of the snake, turn from the group, toss the head away from myself. He's choice three, choice three. This is a true story. Before I was even thinking about what I was doing, I reached down, put my fingers behind Dan's on the snake's neck, picked up, by the way, that's just a strange thing to say, the snake's neck. Like, a snake is all neck. <laughs> but I put my hands behind his, kind of picked up the tail. I'm standing there holding this two-and-a-half-foot-long copper snake. Dan runs over. He's standing next to Monica. Monica, acting brave, is like, I wasn't afraid of that snake. You know, little pool forming down there by his foot. And <laughs> As I'm standing there holding this copperhead snake, I'm thinking, I don't even like snakes. I've never even picked up a snake before in my life. I'm thinking, if Dan's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, buddy, I'm missing the whole burger. Thinking in eastern Tennessee, they do this at church, and that ain't my denomination. <laughs> As I'm holding this snake, getting ready to turn from the group, toss the head away from myself, I looked at the teenagers, and they're staring at me, kind of staring at the head of the snake. And I looked down to what they were looking at. And now, as I mentioned, my fingers were further down the snake's neck than Dan's had been. And so while I was standing there trying to figure out what to do, the snake had enough play with its head that it had turned its head 
and it was beginning to close its fangs on my thumb. Well, I did not turn from the group. Take the head of the snake, toss it away from myself at a 45-degree trajectory. Out it's done, letting go of the tail. I took one look at that snake, and I made up my own maneuver. I looked this ah! Are you okay? <laughs> Only problem was I hadn't gotten to the turning away from the group part. I sent this copperhead snake sailing straight into the circle of teenage delinquents. I'm watching it fly through the air thinking this might not look good on my resume. The snake flies through the air, hits Monica in the shoulder, drops to the ground. Snake's kind of like slithered, like getting me away from these crazy people. She didn't even move. She's like, that snake had bit me. He'd have had a chance. <laughs> thinking back to how many drugs she'd used before she was on the course, I tended to believe her. But I looked around. Everyone's staring at me. I'm like, I'm OK. Dan's okay, Monica's okay. You know, pretending that throwing a venomous snake at a 16-year-old girl's face is a normal, everyday thing to do. I said, Dan, don't pick up any more snakes. He said, oh, okay. After the course, I had to fill out some paperwork. Had stuff like uh, near-miss form, it's called. Had things like equipment failure, weather conditions, other. I had stupidity. My boss said, did you really throw a venomous snake at Monica's face? I was like, <laughs> not intentionally. And I, that's the first story I ever sold back in 1996. I wrote it for this youth magazine called With, the magazine for radical Christian youth. It was a Mennonite magazine. I always thought that was ironic. Radical Christian youth, Mennonites. But I wrote it for that magazine, and, and I used it as an analogy of how sometimes sin slithers into our lives, and we pick it up, and it's dangerous, it's deadly, and sometimes it is even that the temptation to pick it up is made uh, more um, robust, I would say, by the fact that uh, we're not supposed to. And uh, don't go swimming in the water because there's snakes. Oh, I think I'll pick up this, this deadly poisonous snake. And so all of that was on my mind when I was looking at the verses for this week. Now, we're in the book of Romans, so if you uh, want to flip your Bible open to Romans chapter 7, we're at verses 7 to 25, and we'll touch on verses 1 and 2 in chapter 8 of Romans. Um, you know, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he didn't put chapter breaks in there. That, those came many years later, and so the conclusion to what he's writing in chapter 7 actually comes in chapter 8, so we'll touch on those. Now, if you look at the context, you know, Paul has been talking about how Christians are no longer slaves in chapter 6 to sin, but have been set free. Um, and, and so now he's anticipating what people might say, uh, some, um, I guess, some questions that might come up. Uh, one thing to look at, too, when you look at context is in, um, in this section, I don't know if you're a Bible circler or writing your Bible or anything or highlight stuff, but... But um, look at how many times sentences start with the word for or so. So in other words, he's saying for this happens, for this, and so conclusion. So like in uh, uh, verse 7, he does it, for I would not have known what it is. And then um, he does it in verse, uh, verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity. Then so in verse 12, and then 13, um, 
Yeah, okay, so all right, 14, for we know that the law is sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. He keeps going. Four, and then uh, so, 17, so now it's no longer I who do it, for I know, for I have the desire, for I do not do the good. And so he goes on and on with this. It's a, it's, um, it's a, it's a movement, a logical movement through, throughout the section. I used to teach eighth grade logic at Providence Academy. And um, people said, isn't that a contradiction in terms, eighth grade and logic? And, and I would always say, well, I'm, I'm, I would say to the students, I'm going to teach you this year how to win arguments. And eighth graders were all about learning logic. But this is a logical progression of, of thought here. And so let's look at this a little bit. In, in um, chapter 7, verse 7 says, what should we say then that the law is sin? Is he, He's saying, should we assume then that there's something wrong with God's law, with the commands that have been given? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. So he's saying there's nothing wrong with God's law that was given to, uh, to Israel. Um, the purpose of the law has always been not to show us a pathway that we can that will lead to heaven if we just uh, obey enough commands um, or a stair stepper leading to heaven, but in, instead to show us how much we need a Savior. So in, um, in Romans 3, 19 and 20, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So God's law was given so that we could become aware of our need for a Savior. So there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, he says, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known this idea uh, of what was wrong. For for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, coveting is the last commandment. Is, is the one where you can't, it's not, I don't know how to say this, you can't fake it because it's internal. Like you can not kill someone or not steal or go to church and follow all the other commandments outwardly and people say, oh, he's a pretty good person or whatever. But, but coveting all happens inside of us and it has to do with envy, with jealousy, with greed. Envy is when, you, um, when you're envious of someone else's position like at work. Jealousy is when you're uh, coveting someone else's affection, like in a relationship. Greed is when you're coveting or wanting their possessions. So you have all of these are different, you know, aspects of coveting. Now you say, well, is it wrong to want something I don't have? No, not necessarily wrong to want something you don't have. But it is if that becomes bitter, bitterness inside of you and resentment um, inside of you and discontent. All of those are evidence of coveting. And so Paul says there was a time where I didn't really get it, this coveting thing. But then all of a sudden, here comes God's law, and it shows me uh, that I was coveting. Now, in verse 8, he says, but sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, he personifies sin as if it's a real entity. It isn't just something that someone does wrong uh, at a certain time, but he's like, sin is this personification of this entity. He says, it seized the opportunity and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Things got worse. It's almost like with that snake, it's like once you hear that obey or or hear that command, uh, don't pick up any more snakes, it's kind of like, I think I'm going to go pick up a snake. Almost makes it worse. He says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, uh, you know, Paul isn't the only one to personify sin as an entity. 
Um, actually, in uh, the book of Genesis, God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching outside your door, but you must master it. So God did the same thing with sin. The thing is, Cain uh, couldn't, couldn't master it, and Paul couldn't, and neither can we. On our own, we can't master it. Um, he says, once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, this section is like, well, what is that even talking about, Steve? He says, I was alive apart from the law. What does that mean? And, and how did he die because of the commandment? I was looking through this um, translation, the New Living Translation, and I really like how they translate uh, these verses here. So I'll just read verse 9 in the New Living Translation. Translation It says, I felt fine when I did not understand what the law commanded or demanded, but when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. So the good law, which was supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. So it's this process. I was wrong. I was deceived. I was dead. I was, it destroyed me. Verse 10, the very commandment that had promised to life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the command, deceived me, and through it killed me. I thought it was a garter snake when I caught it. It's deceiving. And then... Is deadly. So throughout this, this section, he's saying, look, I didn't understand coveting, so there came a day when I did, and that just kind of made it worse, and, and it kind of, it just destroyed me. So we want sometimes to do what's forbidden, even though we know that, that it's wrong, and when all we have is the law, it leads to hopelessness. And he was hopeless when all he saw was the law and his sin. So then in verse 12, he comes to this conclusion for the first of the two questions that he's dealing with. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So the conclusion of the first section is the problem isn't lie in God's law or the commands. Guess where the problem lies? Inside of us. And so he says, God's law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. But guess what? I get lured into this stuff I pick up the snake, he didn't say that exactly, and uh, it's deadly. So here comes the second question, and he's going to give his rebuttal of the second question as well. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, if the law is good, is that responsible? He's like, by no means. It was sin again, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Again, it's the same idea from Romans uh, chapter 3, where he's like, it's there to make us aware of, conscious of our sin. Through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jeff was speaking about Romans 6.23, which says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So wages, sin, death, gift, uh, life through, through Jesus. And so... This is this idea of we become aware of it and it leads to uh, hopelessness and helplessness. Now, chapter 7, verse 14 and following, there are a couple of different interpretations of exactly what Paul is talking about. Um, some people say, uh, for instance, in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So some people say, wait a minute, he can't be talking about himself there because he's not uh, sold under sin. So he must be talking about something else. So some people say, well, he's using an analogy of Israel, 
when Israel was in the Old Testament struggling with some people say, well, he's talking about his life before he was a believer. I mean, he had to have been before he was a believer talking about that. So even though um, he says it's present tense, they say, had to be talking about that. Other people say, well, no, actually, he's talking about his current life, like right now, what he's going through. And that's the, that's the uh, interpretation that I really believe, based on the context, is, is the one where he's actually saying, this is my present condition. So there's godly people on both sides and different interpretations, but first of all, because it's the present tense, and the people who read this would have been like, okay, he's talking past tense a minute ago, now he's talking present tense, present life. Uh, there's no struggle if he was dead. That's another reason. The third reason is, in a couple of verses, he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. And that's not something that an unbeliever would say. Like an unbeliever might disdain God's law. He might avoid reading about God's law, but he's not going to delight in it. And finally, it speaks to the reality of the Christian experience for all of us who are believers who say, you know what, I'm still susceptible to this, this sin. Like, I haven't conquered it on my own. I can't seem to do it. And so the reality of the struggle is, is the experience of Christian life for many of us. Okay, so verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Now, when he says flesh, he's not talking about uh, skin, but he's talking about his sinful uh, nature, his, uh, his old sinful nature. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, uh, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And here's, you say, well, wait a minute. Is he saying he's not responsible anymore? Like the sin made me do it, or like the devil made me do it? Like it, I'm not responsible? No, he's just pinpointing that the problem isn't with God's law, it's actually with himself. So it isn't, um, so he says, but sin that dwells within me. That's this, this sinful nature again. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, again, his sinful nature. Uh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So the thing is, willpower is not, on its own, is not enough. You might have all the desire and the willpower in the world to say, look, I really seriously want to overcome this, but I still fall into it sometimes, this sin that I have. Um, Isaiah 64, 6 puts it this way, says, we, all, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. No matter how good we can get to be on our own, guess what? It's not enough to meet all of God's requirements. And there, that's, the good, there, that's the bad news, but the good news is coming up. So don't get too uh, you know, caught up with saying, oh, it's hopeless. For I do not do the good I want to do, verse 19, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, but it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's falling short every time based on his own willpower. So 19 basically reiterates verse 15, which we talked about. Verse 20 just reiterates uh, verse 17. So it's repeated for emphasis. So he, he says, he makes this conclusion, then he reiterates it so that the people who are reading it will understand he's really Really, because sometimes when you repeat something, it's to make sure that the point is known. So when you repeat it over and over, you really want people to remember it. So when you say something again and again in different ways, it's just the same as repeating it so that people will understand it. 
So if you repeat it again, all right. So verse 21 says, so here's one of those conclusions. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And here's where he says that. And I think that if you're a believer, um, you're saying, you know what? That's true for me. Like, I really delight in this. Um, Or you might say, you know, I haven't quite come to that point yet where I love this idea of God's law, but that's the journey I'm on. But he's still susceptible to temptation. You see, see, in verse 23, says, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and make me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here he comes. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So left on his own, he faces desperation. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when he leaves, leaves just looking at himself in his own condition. He finds thanksgiving, um, moves from desperation to thanksgiving. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with shame, but shame can be a really cruel master. You do something, you, you think something, you, you say something, and afterwards you're just ashamed of it. You know, the Bible says those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. Jesus is not about shaming people. Um, He didn't come so that you're going to feel bad. He came to give you a a new life. He's not here to condone what we do wrong. That's one thing but he's not here to condemn us either. In in, uh, John 3, 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world guilty, but to save the world through him. So it's not about shame. It's not about getting away with more stuff. It's not about condemning us. It's about forgiving us. It's about giving us new life, new freedom. And we're gonna see that in just a second in, in a couple of verses coming up. You know, I heard this story one time about this missionary who had, who had preached to these people. And when he was done preaching to them, uh, it was, uh, he came back later and he said, how are you doing? And this one guy said, well, thing is, I feel like there's two wolves inside of me now that I've become a Christian. Guys, missionary said, what are you talking about, two wolves? He said, well, there's a white wolf, a gray wolf, and they're fighting all the time. And the missionary said, well, which wolf is going to win? And the guy said, whichever one I feed the most. And I used to think that that story was about us, the struggle inside of us. I used to think that there was the old and the new, and they're fighting it off, and whichever one we feed the most will we'll win. But then I realized we're not the battleground. We're the gray wolf. And the victory has already been won through what Jesus did. It isn't like if you feed one part of your nature, that's going to win, and you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying, and that's not what Paul is saying is all. So it's about who's fighting for you. You know, as a writer, some people have said, you know, when you write mysteries, because I write mysteries for a living, mysteries and thrillers, I said, well, the Bible is kind of like a how-to book. And I said, well, I heard one, one person say one time, the Bible isn't a how-to manual, it's a whodunit. And I kind of like that. I mean, the Bible certainly gives us guides of how to live, but even more central to what the Bible is saying is, who did it for us? It's all, about, it's all about what Jesus did. And that's where he gets to in, in chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, he didn't come to condemn, he came to forgive. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and uh, death. So he's talking about sin and death and how all of this, this shame and this coveting was brought to life. He's like, man, I'm just wretched, I'm desperate. But then he turns to Jesus and he says, there's now no condemnation because God's law is good. The fight isn't over, but the victory is won. So if you're not going to, you know, think of anything else from today, think of that. The fight isn't over, but through Christ, the victory is won. And so we put off defeatist thinking instead of thinking, oh, I'll never be able to do this on my own. We say, of course not. So who did it for you? The victory is already already won. So in conclusion, some applications. Number one is, for Christians, there's a new default setting for your life. The default is no longer defeat, but victory. It's no longer the law of sin and death, but freedom, forgiveness, and life. This is where he's going. This is why he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. There's freedom in Christ Jesus through the law of sin and death. The second thing is no one on their own, whether they're Christian or not a Christian, can completely conquer, conquer, conquer sin on their own. So instead, um, even unbelievers or even believers will still be susceptible sometimes and fall into, into sins. Romans um, 3, 9 through 11 talks about how no one, um, no one seeks God on their own. There is um, no one who will be declared righteous, he says, not, not, even, not even one. A third thing is the more holy you become or we become, the more we pursue God, it's almost like the more unholy you realize you are left on your own. So like uh, some of the most uh, mature Christians that I know would never claim to be mature Christians. They would be like, man, I just look in my life and I see a lot of stuff I've messed up. Um, and so... Temptation will never go away, even in the Christian life, but neither will God's forgiveness, his uh, love, or his victory. You know, um, I told this story of the snake one time at a teen comedy club, uh, and there were eight teenagers there. Try doing stand-up comedy for eight teenagers sometime. And anyway, I told this story of the snake, and I kind of used it. I talked a little bit about forgiveness at the end, and I felt like, okay, that was just, they hated me, they didn't love it, whatever, and I was going to leave. So I'm slipping toward the door when all of a sudden this girl, uh, maybe 16 or 17, real pretty girl, came over to me, and um, she had her hand stuffed in her jeans pockets, and um, she said, uh, Steve, thanks for talking about forgiveness. Because I'd mentioned this idea of forgiveness related to this story of how we pick up the snake and it's deadly and yet God will forgive us. And um, I said, okay, you're welcome. And then I said, is there any particular reason you bring that up? She looked back to make sure her friends weren't uh, watching. And then she pulled her hands out of her jeans pockets and held them up. And her wrists were still bandaged, where from that week she tried to end her life. And as she held her wrists up, she said, I wonder if God can forgive me for this. 
I didn't know what to say. Like, I wanted to say, of course he will. God will forgive you, right? But I didn't know that it would, you know, impact her. And so I was like desperately trying to think of what was the right thing to say. And as a storyteller, naturally, I thought of another story. So I said, can I tell you one last uh, story? Uh, and this will kind of be my last story up here too. And she said, yeah, that's fine. So I said, well, I heard this story about a pastor who started a church in South America. And every week he would tell people how God had forgiven their sins. But every week he wondered if God could really, had really forgiven the thing he had done when he was in college. Because when he was in college, he had done something so terrible and so unspeakable that he'd never admitted it to another human being. But it, it had it followed him. He wondered if God could really forgive that thing. It haunted him, you know, over the years. And so anyway, his church grew, and there's this girl that joined the church uh, with her family. Her name was Maria. And Maria claimed that when she went to sleep at night, that Jesus would appear to her in her dreams and speak to her. Now, after a while, this pastor was kind of skeptical about this whole thing of Jesus talking to this girl in her dreams, and he said, all right, Maria, I'll tell you what. The next time Jesus appears to you in one of your dreams, ask him a question. Ask him what sin I committed back in college. See what he says. She said, okay, I will. So a couple weeks pass by, and he hasn't heard any more from Maria, and he's like, see, it was all made up. I, um, I, I, I nipped that in the bud kind of thing. And so, but then the third week, she, everyone else has left church, and she's sitting there at the front of the church, and he goes over, and he says, Maria, did you, have, did you have a dream this week? Did you speak to Jesus? She said, yes, I did. He said, well, did you ask him the question? She said, yes. He said, well, well what did he say? She said, well, in my dream, I was seated on a park bench, and Jesus came walking up to me through a trail in the forest, and I said, Jesus what sin is it that my pastor did in college? And Jesus looked down at me and he said, I, I don't know. And I said to that girl that night, in Jeremiah 31, 34 in the Bible, it says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will what? I will remember their sins no more. I said, whatever it is you've done, God's love is greater. However far you've fallen, God's grace is deeper. We, we sang about it. His mercy is more. You remember the last song we just sang? No matter what it is, his mercy is greater. His mercy is more. And so I talked to the girl that night, and she started crying. I said, can you believe that God would love you that much, that God would forgive you? And finally, when, before she left, she said, I do. And so it is with us that even if there are things that you feel like you're struggling with, God's mercy and grace are greater and they are more. He'll forgive and he'll forget. So if you're a believer, take heart. Don't get caught in the defeatist thinking of like, there's no hope for me. The victory is already won, even though the battle uh, rages on in our hearts. And secondly, if you're not a Christian, and you're like, you know what? I've never felt that forgiveness. I've never actually had this knowledge that God could forgive me or does forgive me. He's available even today. And he wants to do that. He wants to give you victory 
Uh, let me read that verse one more time, and then we're going to say a prayer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. God, the reality of life on this planet is that sometimes it's rough, it's tough. We get lured into temptation. We pick up the snake. It's deadly, it's shameful, and we feel desperate without you. But help us to come to the same place Paul did, where he says, there's now no condemnation. Thanks be to God, because the victory is won through Jesus. Help us, give us strength, remind us that willpower is not enough, just left on our own, but that through you, leaning on you, we can find we can find victory and peace and ultimate forgiveness forever. And God, for anyone here who's like interested, but maybe has never committed to you, never placed their faith in you, even today, I pray, just work in their hearts through your spirit to wake them up to their need and also to the peace and the fact that their shame can be over for good when they trust in what you have done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.